Welcome once again to Season 4 of Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, Listen Local, Think Global. I am your host, Tannis McDonald. I'm a poet and an essayist, a professor and a reviewer, and a voracious reader. My latest book is a collection of essays in many forms. It's called Straggle, Adventures in Walking While Female, and it's published by the wonderful people at Woolsack and Wynn. I love to write, I love to talk about books, and I love to bring it all together and talk with other writers. And that's exactly what we do here on Watershed Writers. Acknowledge the people who do the literary work in the region. My guest this week is someone who is guesting in the region for the winter. Here from the UK to be the Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence at Wilfrid Laurier University. That writer is poet and performer Nazar Hussein, author of Boldface, Skywritings, and his latest book, Love Language, newly published by Coach House Press. Like many writers, Nazar has lived a peripatetic life. He has lived in both southwestern and eastern Ontario, in Toronto, Windsor, and Kingston, and in various places in and around the UK. He currently teaches at Leeds Beckett University. He's in the Waterloo region until the end of March, visiting classes and offering one-on-one -on -one meetings with writers in the Laurier community. Nazar's 2019 book, Sky Writings, is a book composed entirely of three-letter airport codes. And that sounds impossible until you try it. Then you see that it is indeed possible, though it is demanding and, in turn, invigorating. How do I know? I tried it, and I taught my students to try it too. Skywritings was called Ingenious by the New York Times, and that review also said this, it is powerful to see these foundational myths reconstituted out of bureaucratic mundanity, like a model of the human genome built out of Lego. Nazar's most recent book, Love Language, was published in October 2023, and it's described by the publisher as, quote, poems that repeat and hypnotize as English becomes more absurd, from Apple's terms to the conditions of other poets' love poems from performance reports to pop songs, Hussein skillfully and joyfully toys with everyday texts to talk about love, to call out racism, to think about poems. Allow these playful poems to woo you, to let you fall in love with language again. Now, for me, this is a very accurate description of the book, and I'm going to add to it. I've been teaching love language this winter and can tell you from firsthand experience with this book, that it's a book that puzzles, then intrigues, then gets a lot of laughs before it puzzles you again. The book has also drawn praise from the American-Ukrainian poet Ilya Kaminsky. And Kaminsky writes, These inimitable poems that take place seriously and allow seriousness to enter the room disguised as incantation. 
These are poems that long to dismiss the lyric's most recent pretty mask of polite propriety and instead take us to the lyric's ancient roots. It started way back, the poet says, when a cave person made a grunt to speak the name of a thing. This is the lyric's ancient pact with the world to spin playful language into seriousness of giving things their names. What are we without this speaking, this tune? And then there's this from the Toronto Star. Hussein's poems both puzzle and illuminate as he delivers answers in no answers, clarity through absurdity. Can we break down the inanity of our modern lives with verve and levity? Yes, indeed. Love language unveils the possibilities. So I'm going to unveil one of the possibilities right now by reading one of the poems from Love Language. It's about writing and about books as complicated objects. The poem is called, Write a Book Made of Laughter and Stray Eyelashes. Write a book made of lost remote controls. Write a book made of butt implants. Write a book made of carrot tops and ivory soap. Write a book made of actual fiction. Write a book made of lasers. Write a book made of high fructose corn syrup. Write a book made of sales pitches. Write a book made of pitch. Write a book made of dog ears. Write a book made of leaves of grass. Write a book made of post-it notes. Write a book made of wrought iron. Write a book made of amoebas holding hands. Write a book made of stubble. Write a book made of the ashes of the books you burnt. Write a book made of harming the environment. Write a book made of carbon neutrality. Write a book made of solar panels. Write a book made of the Supreme Court. Write a book made with bullets. Write a book made of buddies. Write a book made of purpose. Write a book made of a book made of a book made of a book. Nazar Hussein has also been the writer-in-residence for The First Story Project in 2017 and the writer-in-residence at the University of Windsor in 2019, where he was praised for his rapport with the students and his uncommon generosity by Dr. Susan Holbrook. More recently, he served as faculty mentor at the Banff Center for the Fine Arts in winter 2023. While serving as the Edna Staber writer-in-residence, Nazar will be hard at work on two other books, an experimental novel and a poetry collection titled Honest Sonnets, in which he applies his mind to the traditional and ever-changing form of the sonnet, a form that is enjoying newfound popularity in recent years. We'll talk about these books and everything else. Nazar Hussein, welcome to Watershed Writers. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, and it's a pleasure to have you in Canada, in Ontario, in Kitchener-Waterloo. Tell us a little bit about where you were raised in Canada and where your journeys have taken you uh, in subsequent years. The complete biography, of course, I'll say from my memoirs. I was born in the UK, in London, and scant weeks after that, um, we moved to southern Ontario where my father was a chef at the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto. We moved to Kingston, Ontario, and Kingston split between Kingston and Napanee. That was kind of the formative years, all the way through to high school and my undergraduate degree at Queen's in Kingston. I consider Kingston a kind of a home territory, and I grew up on the shores of Lake Ontario. It was, you know, pretty idyllic. Since then, uh, my fiance and I left Kingston 
in 2001, I began a degree at the University of Windsor, shout out to the creative writing department there, um, where I did a master's degree in creative writing and English literature. And I think that's when I turned a corner and uh, started to become a writer, a really important stage in my development. Shortly after the master's degree, my partner had an opportunity to study in the UK. So I found myself on the return leg 30 years later back in the UK, where I also got a, a doctoral degree from the University of York. And as you know, anyone who works in academia knows, you develop your network. And because I'm a citizen of the UK as well as Canada, um, I was able to stay, get work, and I find myself now in 2023 as a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, where I am constantly astonished by the writing that my students produce. And now I teach creative writing. And, and now I'm here for three months um, yeah. at Gloria University, which is fabulous. So you're here as the 11th Edna Stabler uh, Writer-in-Residence at Wilfrid Laurier University, and you've just been here a couple of weeks for catching you very early in your residency. And I want to ask you a little bit about your current book, Love Language, and the kinds of things you're talking to students and uh, community writing members in terms of that book and, of course, in terms of everything else. But I want to focus on Love Language first and how you chose the title, uh, what you're doing with that book, and how you are speaking to others about it in ways to facilitate their writing. My original title for this book was called Fun with English. Fun with English? Yeah, that was that was the idea that, that started it, if I go far back enough into my drafts. And I have to thank Susan Holbrook for talking me out of it. Um, <laughs> um, she was my editor on this, on this book, um, as well as my previous one. And she found the phrase love language, which just appears tucked into one of the later poems in this book and suggested that as a title. And it seemed really current... And it has like these, and maybe I'm sort of bridging into the second part of your question. And it has that kind of Pinterest valence, you know, food is my love language, or I don't know, movies are my love language. It's a really useful phrase, I think, just in, in common parlance, as it were, um, to, to speak of one's love language, because it, it centers our relationships along lines of love. Right. Um, and I think that's that's a really nice way to to foreground this thing that I think is so important. And I wonder if it's sometimes kind of taken for granted or lost mm. in in contemporary poetry where, you know, it, it's it's it's. And this is not to suggest that pain or trauma or loss or betrayal or any of the sort of darker sides of human experience aren't worth writing about. Of course they are. But I've, I'm finding myself tilting in the other direction to affirm joy and play and fun as equally valid spaces to work. And that's where the other sort of sense of the title, I think, comes through. It's almost like an insistence or, or an imperative on the reader to love language, to do everything you can to love this thing. Because what is a poem if it isn't invested in language to the point that one could conceivably call it love? 
I think your point about writing joy is well taken. I think it's hard to do, right? In some ways, it's hard to do without seeming twee or uh, sort of uh, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, right? But we have to look for ways to do that because otherwise we, we would say there isn't any other way of experiencing joy except to be naive. Right. And, and I don't want to trivialize, you know, fun or play or exuberance or adventure, any of it. But you're right. The, the way that we talk about love is so overdetermined that I, it actually became quite a struggle in this text, in, the, in, in working on this book, to try and do it without being saccharine or twee. And how do you take love seriously was one of the things that, that I bumped up against. You know, you mentioned pain and loss and betrayal, amongst other things, but none of those things would exist without love to start with, right? Our pain comes from, you know, not being loved the way we want to, not being loved enough, um, misplacing our love. Same thing with betrayal and loss. Of course, loss doesn't exist unless you have, unless you have love. You're not going to notice that someone is gone unless there is an investment. And and we were, well, giving blues. Mm -hmm. um, shows that after love or in the absence of love there's this evil which butts up against this concept of evil um that's that's a very important poem for me that helps me steer through this kind of work for our listeners um Nazar and I had a conversation with some students this week about BP Nichols concrete poem blues uh, in which he repeats the word love in various ways across the page. Uh, the reader is in, invited to read a poem that on the surface seems unreadable, and on once you spend any amount of time with it, you begin to think about love and its many iterations. So if you don't know the poem, I invite you to look it up. B.P. Nickel Blues. You can have a look at that kind of love language. You were talking about the choices that you were making when you were writing Love Language and the choice mm. to emphasize joy. And um, and what else? What else was your your organizing principles for this book? I don't know if it's an organizing principle so much, but certainly the process. The bulk of this book was written in um, the various lockdowns of the COVID pandemic, which were a really interesting time. My fortunes were were great at that point. I was able to take my work and do it remotely. And I know that that's not like common across the board, but certainly the introvert and writer in me found many affordances um, in the lockdowns, including just kind of an open time and space with which to, to write. And what I discovered uh, was that there's a lot of dishes to do that I, I was doing the same tasks over and over and over again. And the longer the lockdowns went, the more comforting those routines and repetitions became. And a lot of the formal moves in this text are, are based on that kind of repetitive, um, cyclical ways of thinking, which kind of then snuck into the poems as form. So it really, yeah, I suppose organizes itself around this kind of concept of repetition, which also butts up against the concept of like love, because love is insistent and repetitive as well. I think it kind of crystallizes around those kinds of ideas, the sense of repetition and how that's embodied 
I am going to ask you to read from Love Language in a minute, and I'll um, provide a, a little introduction to it for our listeners, that uh, there are lyric moments in this book, for sure, uh, but it would be inaccurate to describe it as 100% a volume of lyric poetry. So there's lots of concern with what language is, what language does, what language doesn't do, and how our concerns about love overlap with that. So some of this is acknowledgedly hard to read only uh, when you have only the ears. So that's our challenge today. Uh, sometimes you need to see it on the page and uh, sometimes it'll, it'll work just if you hear it. So what have you chosen to read for us? From language to language. This picks up a few things. It, you'll, you'll hear the repetitiveness and you'll hear, um, I hope, as well, a number of kind of cultural references that are kind of coded into this piece. And I think the idea might be to show that through that repetition and, and what's about to happen with the cultural references is a kind of moment of communication and reaching out, which was the kind of desire underneath all of us while we were isolated from one another. And hopefully, yeah, for those of you that are fans of uh, Steeler's Wheel, I believe the opening line should set the tone for the rest of this. Um, so here we go. From language to language. Language to the left of me, language to the right. Here I am stuck in the language with you. Of the language, for the language, by the language. When they language low, we language high. A language is haunting Europe. Ashes to languages, languages to dust. The phantom of all languages here. Language come, language go. Language and language went up the language to fetch a pail of language. We, the language. Here a language, there a language, everywhere a language, language. A language, binary the language, would smell as language. A language is a language is a language. When language calls, ich bin ein languager. Language on a hot tin language. Or a long language, I used to go to language early. Your language, what your language. Language, the world language, stately, plump language mulligan came from the language head, bearing a language of lather on which a language and a language lay crossed. Languaging and languaging in the languaging gyre, the language cannot hear the languager. There is no language outside the language. It was the language of times. It was the language of times. It is a language universally language that a single language in possession of a good language must be in want of a language. Oh, language, my language. Woo! <laughs> That's such a tour de force of uh, elusiveness, right? Of literary illusion. So it's all embedded in the poem with language leaping in for every major noun that you replace. So definitely we get this idea of repetition. And it also starts to form a kind of listening or reading community, right? Because some people are going to get some of those and some people are not going to get them, right? And it you know, depends on a, a, what you've read, what you've told it are, are important books, all, course, all kinds of things, right? 
And I was very glad that you begun with the Steelers uh, wheel stuck <laughs> in the middle with you, right? Right. Um, because uh, the reference to Michelle Obama and when they language low, we language high. I also thought, yeah, language low, language high. We want all of those kinds of cultural references in there, you know, from Marx and James Joyce and Jane Austen to Steelers wheel. I think I want to ask you about the place of humor and recognition in a poem like this, right? Because right. I've already said it creates a kind of reading community. In your experience reading this, yeah, what's the impact? What's the realization that comes through the humor? I think what I like about this one is that it recognizes that it's all language um, and that you can get the message even if the word isn't the word you're expecting. And that's just fun. That's hilarious. I guess it just highlights the, the fundamental codedness of all of the things that we use. If I can call attention to the fact that, yeah, that we're just using these weirdo words. Um, you know, I've gotten to the point where I've forgotten the original line of Steeler's Wheel. Is it clowns to the clowns left? Clowns to the left, we jokers to the right. To the right, yeah. And, and just replacing the word clown with language, it still sort of carries the original message but with a completely different signifier. And, and I just find that fascinating that enough of it leaks through. Um, I was going to say the same thing about a language is stalking Europe because I recognized it. And then I couldn't remember the original noun just right. because it had been a while since I, I had read it. And I just, the language as the replacement word slipped into my brain and replaced it for a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, kind of, I guess maybe, maybe even more succinctly, it's the kind of, it's the joke that people who did the peanuts animation, specifically the animations um, like Charlie Brown and his gang. And when an adult comes into the room and you only see their like, you know, legs, and when the yeah yeah and the, and the, all that comes out of the adult's mouth is this trombone muffled sound which stands in for language or discourse that gives the kids kind of license ah whatever you know we can we don't really have to pay attention to that but the meaning is probably getting across and they know when they're in trouble and and the viewer too need to hear the actual words and I just find that really funny and curious and worth like just playing i think about those animations those tv specials with with the peanuts characters with charles schultz's characters it's so much about children's culture and what children think is important you know the great pumpkin you know or the miracle of christmas or whatever is the subject that they don't go to talk to adults about it yeah lucy is the psychiatrist in the group you know with the and they mimic the structures of adulthood. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Charlie Brown and Linus are sitting in a bar, you know, instead of a brick, <laughs> instead of a brick wall, you know, in their adulthood, just kind of like resting their hand on their, their chin on their hand and having these kinds of deep philosophical conversations. It wouldn't take much in the visual to like, you know, here's what they're going to do as, as grownups. So yeah, indeed. So we're always kind of there, I guess. And maybe that's what play and fun and mimicry and illusions can get us to think about is, is the, the kind of presence. We know enough to kind of get by, even if we don't have the exact word. 
there's, there's something quite noble about that. It's true. Yeah. I think of um, Gary Barwin writing, the poem knows more than we do, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. talking about that from a writer's point of view, right? That as writers, we have to trust what the language is doing on the page as opposed to try to force it into a kind of box, right? Right, or to supplement it too much with other reading. I think this, it's really interesting. This is a great question. Like, what I'm trying to do is to just get people to remember to look at the page. You know, an impossible poem to read on this podcast would be page 14 of Love Language, which is essentially a blank page. Um, the title of the poem, if I can use that word, is called Reading, and then the and that appears in the top left corner where you would expect it. And then the eye has to traverse a largely blank page until you get to the bottom right corner where there's just the word, look, look. And what's reading if not looking at the page? I really want to force this kind of like immediate embodied present relationship um, so that the language isn't ref necessarily referring outward or beyond the book, but straight at the reader. I have to tell you that the first time I read that, I missed seeing look at the bottom. Right. And I thought, um, okay, so that's just a, um, you know, that's a section heading and there's not supposed to be anything under it. And I went mm. on. And the second and third time I read it, I went, oh, there it is. But the thing is, I didn't look. <laughs> and right. therefore look was hidden from me because of my lack of looking. Yeah. Right. So there's a certain irony to that, too, and an irony to the fact that you said it's impossible to read on a podcast, and then we did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's you're right about this idea of drawing people's um, eyes back to the page. And it's something that I, you know, I think about a lot when I teach poetry is that sometimes we have this kind of division between what we think poetry does, uh, lyric poetry. And I will tell you, a lot of people like are afraid of lyric poetry. They find it extremely encoded and they think, I don't know how to read this. Tell me how to read this. And then other people go, well, I don't know how to read this experimental poetry. Tell me how to read this. Mm -hmm. So we've got these, these kinds of codes that are happening on the page and the work of the reader is to, yeah, is to look, is to spend time with it and to not expect that it's going to give up its treasures to us quickly, right? Yeah. That it takes attention and attention takes time and it also takes um, a willingness to be uncomfortable and not know the answers. Well, I think a lot about the fact that people talk like they know what the lyric is, but I'm mm. not really sure that I know or that anyone really knows other than... Oh, there's you know, a thousand sort of, definitions, right? A couple of months ago, I was like, hey, wait, everybody's talking about this thing like they know exactly what a lyric is. But increasingly, I find it like we don't, which makes it that is available then for experimentation than what we might call canonical avant-garde experimental forms of writing as well. I think there's, there's a nice meeting point between the edge of the lyric, let's say the beginning of the experimental. They're not so far apart. Uh, yeah, I think it's wrong to talk about them as though they're mutually exclusive, right? And so I was drawing that distinction often because um, it is something that I want to talk about when I introduce people to poetry. Sometimes people need a language to, to talk about, the lyric image, etc., right? And usually I define the lyric for undergrad students or for people just starting to write is the movement between an image and an affect and back again. 
which is as a working definition, it's fine. It doesn't cover like centuries of tradition, but when you're yeah. talking to people about reading a poem or investing in reading a poem, they want to know, well, how, what, what am I doing? So I say, okay, look mm -hmm. at the image, look how some emotion comes into it. And then look how the emotion comes back to the image and back to the emotion, et cetera, in a, a thousand different ways. Right. I would jump in and sort of say something like, you know, where do we use that word now? right mm. lyric and my students will say well song lyrics and i'm like yeah of course right and, and what do songs have right and they struggle with it for a moment and like well they repeat themselves like they're extremely repetitive intentionally and intentionally so and yet it, we hesitate to call Gertrude stein a lyric poet mm. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's, it, it would be very easy to, to look at some of the more repetitive pieces and say something like love language and neglect or forget or, over, you know, see it as experimental when, in fact, it's kind of lyric. Yeah. You know, or it's using some of the same techniques that we use in, in lyric form, but just differently. So speaking of writing differently, I want to talk to you about a book that you published a couple of years ago. And um, I think you've, you've talked about this book a lot, but our listeners can uh, could stand an introduction to it, mostly because of the unusualness of the language constraint that you use. And for those of you who want to know a lot more about this, Nasser has a TEDx talk out there called How to Notice the Glaringly Obvious, which I sometimes use as an introduction to, uh, to this work. But the book is called Sky Writings. I think I'm going to have you introduce how you wrote it and the way you use language in skywritings. Well, listeners, cast your mind back to the last time you took a flight and ask yourself, where did you go and where did you leave from? And think about your luggage as you disembark at either end of the journey. And there's always a tag attached, looped around the handle of your suitcase, and it will have a prominent three-letter code on it. Toronto, if you land there, the bag will emerge with YYZ. The closest airport to where I live is Manchester International, and the bags have this tag MA for Manchester. And it always kind of irked me that the, the airport code for Manchester matched up so nicely with the name of the place, and that Toronto, Lester B. Pearson couldn't find LBP or TOR, for instance, but instead we're left with this kind of weirdly bureaucratic YYZ or YVR or YYC. Canadian airports are strange in that sense. And then I realized that MAN for Manchester made a tiny word. And I asked the very simple question, I wonder how many airports make three-letter words? which sent me on a three-year journey, as it were, uh, of armchair travel, I think, as my publisher put it. And I went through every airport on in the IATA airport database and pulled out everything that could qualify as a word, or I loosened the restraint a little bit, uh, or a syllable. And then I wrote a book entirely using those snippets of language and nothing else. So every word in skywriting is a location somewhere on Earth. I got to a point where it was a lot of pattern recognition. I had these sheets of three-letter words and scraps 
And I realized one day that there were a lot of animals in there. If you'll indulge me, I'll read one. Oh, yes, please. So this poem takes most of the animals that um, I found in this exploration three-letter IATA airport codes. And it's called The Ark. And you will have to know the names of all of the human beings that were also on Noah's Ark. There's a little work around that's kind of near the end of the poem. Okay. TWO does not exist as an airport, so I used the Spanish DOS as a workaround. And furthermore, it's been pointed out to me that ahi, tuna, koi fish, and eels all know how to swim. They probably weren't on the ark anyway, but I drew the map. I can't take them out now. So uh, yeah, they're on the ark as far as this poem is concerned. The ark. Get dos ahi, dos koi, dos eel, dos cow and cub, bee and boa, yak and leo, doe and dog, dos ape, ant, asp, auk, dos bat, rat, cat, cur and mog, you and gnu, gadfly and mayfly, ram, nag and pet, pig, fat hog, pug and pup, the lamb, kid, and the fox, kit, the elk, rock, and yak, the sea, sow, and taurus. Orf, ba, baby, cougar, caw, mew, moo, yip, wag, paw, and get one Noah and his emzara, one ham and nel atomic, one shim and his bay. One Japheth and Ada Ten AC, all the DNA and RNA. Get the hay for the poo pit. Get the aft wet. Dry the bow or row the pen. Yay! See the tor? Ararat. Ararat, of course, being the, the mountain that the ark was found on. Um, Japheth. His wife is Adetanesi, Noah's wife is Amsara, Ham's wife is Nilatamuk, but Shem's wife was Sequelitabab. <laughs> and it just wouldn't <laughs> be done in airport coach. Just couldn't do it. So <laughs> I had to do the workaround, uh, B-A-E, Shem and his bae, uh, which I found really funny. But, you know, you listen to a poem like that, and I, I appreciate the fact that you're talking about workarounds, because this is this is language in a nutshell. We have all kinds of words for all kinds of things, and then we have to have a workaround if we want to have a word that says, oh, I'm both nervous and excited, right? right? It's We don't have a single word for that. People are always saying, oh, this is going to get lost in translation from another language because English doesn't accommodate this word. Hilariously, like we we talked briefly about translation rights for skywriting, and I was like, well, there's no translation because these airport codes exist in in English all mm -hmm. over the world, but would appear the same if I wrote it in Chinese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, because I'm only using airport codes, and they yeah. use the Latin alphabet to describe their airports. Um, yeah. As does you know every other language on earth. Um, so English, it's still colonizing the globe, oh, yes. which I find fascinating, right? Like it's embedded so deep that I don't think we could get it uprooted. Japanese airline pilots have to know English to that extent to at least identify the letters in the alphabet long enough to 
pilot your ship in your, in your airplane to a different country. It's, uh, I think it's it's really funny that English happens to be the medium for that. I know when we uh, when I was talking about this poem with my students, many of them didn't know what Ararat was, but they mm. really want to talk about the fact that this poem ended on a rat. Mm. Right? That the rat somehow sort of you know was was rising to the top of all the uh, of all the animals, which I thought was a was a fascinating way to look at it, right? So the the rat that is mentioned at the end, right? He would have been the first off the ship, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed, um, indeed. All sink- the DNA and <laughs> RNA, right? Yeah, it was, it, the ship was technically sinking at that point, so yeah. sure, why not? a brief break from our conversation with Nazar Hussein to remind you of literary reading series in the Grand River region. The reading series at St. Jerome's College at the University of Waterloo hosts several writer, writers per year, bringing writers of all genres in from all over. If you've never been to this reading series, I highly recommend it. Everyone is welcome and the events are free to attend. Paris, Ontario is the home of the Riverside Re- Reading Series, organized by one of our guest writers on the podcast, the nonfiction writer, playwright, and literary dynamo, Alison Fishburne. The Riverside Reading Series is held every month in Paris's dog-eared cafe and outdoors in the summer at the Walter Williams Amphitheater beside the beautiful Grand River. And now back to our conversation with Nazar Hussein. You know, this comes back to one of my my earlier question about humor and realization and the kind of connection between people people laugh because in some ways you, you look at that on the page and it is, and don't take this the wrong way, faintly nope. ridiculous, but then things start to come together and uh, it becomes both ridiculous and revealing <laughs> at the same time, right? Yeah. And it was it was fascinating to to watch um, people make make those connections, right? It has kind of the power of a joke. A good joke and a good poem, I think, take the same kind of slant um, angle on what you might expect to be said. And they both rely on the on the pun and, and the sort of multivalent potential in most words. And, and a good joke teller and a good poet, I think, will bend the language a little bit to, to fit. Um, agenda where you have this momentary space where you can say, oh, that thing that you think should have happened, your expectation is actually quite similar to this other thing through the similarity in language that is completely different than than your expectation. But But it's humorously so, like the idea that you can just swap. The only jokes that are coming to mind are, are pretty risque, so I don't want to say any of them. <laughs> but, but you know, like, I could just say the word pianist, mm-hmm. um, and maybe some of our, your listenership will, will already get the joke, can already hear the joke in the background. Mm-hmm. I just find that hilarious. The joke and the poem both rely on, on the slipperiness of language at the level of the, the sound or the spelling or, you know, more theoretically, I suppose, at the level of the sign. I think too that this method invites irreverence, right? Um, yeah. Because we all we all wrote airport code poems in in that class, including me. I took up a serious subject to do it, but immediately the voice of that serious subject 
began making like weird declarations and I just let her do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, because again, it was um, what uh, the limitations of the lexicon allowed a lot of like weird declarations. So I let her have her weird declarations and, and that ran the poem, right. Rather than yeah. me running the poem. I think Susan, Susan Holbrook will say something like the thing about the restriction is that it means say the thing you didn't think you were going to say. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, and, and all these other, as you say, these new voices emerge. And what's more fun than that? You know? Yeah. Um, and fun and very serious. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the possibility that you can unlock different voices um, inside, of, you know, inside of oneself. I think there's a lot of talk in the teaching of creative writing where people are, asked to find their voice as though mm -hmm. there was a singular voice. And, and I, I like to come back to that and sort of suggest that, no, 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 you have a panoply of voices. You yeah. know, a, re a really good writer can do, well, to take Elliot, the police in different voices. You can, you actually can, can mime or ventriloquize or speak in a variety of different registers. And the really best writers that I can think of do that. How boring would writing be if it was just eight, you know, monotone? Indeed. And I think sometimes when, when we talk about finding your voice uh, as a writer, I think it's more like, and I'm dissatisfied with this phrase too, but it gets closer. Write your context, right? Because I think, you know, there's all kinds of people who've been denied their voice, right? Or, mm. or had their voices unlistened to. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever want to say that it's not about voice, but it's also about right where you are, right? And mm -hmm. how you got there and where you'd like to go. Like, like all of that is a kind of context for material. And I know I always have young writers asking me, can I write a poem about X, right? right. About where I grew up. And I said, yeah, why not? What is it about where you grew up that you think is unpoetic? Yeah, right? my students always bring that. And, and, and I say, well, if your question starts with can I, the answer is always yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's what I say too. Is just yes, 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 of course. Yes, go do it. I just taught um, Nile Maddox's poem, um, Poseurs, in class, and it's about a stick insect. It's about a right. walking stick insect. Right. That's what it's about, right? right? And people are like, but why? And I said, well, because she writes in the, in the beginning, she, this was a childhood horror of hers. She was like afraid of the walking stick. And so what she did, for reasons that are her are her own is look very 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 closely at the insect and then write a poem that metaphorizes it over and over and over again that makes it submit to all of all of this language yeah. right and so they're saying but but i don't i don't get it it doesn't solve anything i said are you kidding it's the long look at the thing she was afraid of that yeah. is you know that's the solution if you're looking for a solution that's yeah. what this poem does right yeah, so love, can you write I a poem it. about a stick insect? Yes, you can. <laughs> I just worry that people think that when they find their voice, they they stop there. Yeah. And that actually you you need to find all the voices, you know, mm -hmm. to say all of the things. That it's not just an individual sport. Um, yeah. And that, that if your voice isn't good enough, then somebody else's voice is better yeah but it's like no, 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 you've got all the voices you've got all the language and you can yes. toggle that switch by changing you you know your vocabulary that's a really easy kind of fix speaking of 
switch toggling and uh, different voices mm -hmm. and what happens when people say something and the power of speech and sometimes the, uh, the impotence of speech as well. All of those things uh, are going into a novel that you're, you're working on right now. How much do you want to say about that? Have I, have I let the cat out of the bag? A little bit, but it's no, 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 okay, okay, I'll talk about it. What poet isn't working on a novel, right? Um, Me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the I, one. <laughs> I, I very much appreciate that. Yeah, you hold the line, hold the line, Tennis. I'm trying to push my practice into prose, but it's not really prose. It's still about language. And I don't want to forecast too much here because it's possible that I, uh, I'll fail to, to complete this thing. And, but, but I'll try it just as a thought experiment. The novel's, the tentative title is Ad Speak, and it takes place in the near future in which language has been copyrighted, all of it. Um, so every spoken or written bit of communication is subject to a small fee. Um, and this just presumes like a world where all of our devices are listening to us and there's some kind of magical quantum computer that processes all of that information and then bills you according to what you said. Um, so now, so basically. Near future. <laughs> Very <right>? near. <laughs> and, yeah, and if you've ever had that kind of like queer experience of like saying something and then your phone popping up an advertisement for some related product. If that's happened to you, then, then this, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, ad speak is also ads peak. It's the, the kind of total saturation of advertising because in order to offset the cost of using language in this world, you pepper your conversation with tiny billboards, tiny advertisements. And I'm, I'm still kind of drafting bits of of the speech because this is what it requires me to do is i have to actually write a whole new language based on the kinds of slogans and logos that um that we're kind of subject to in our daily lives so i'm, I'm doing a lot of research into like marketing theory there's a thinker named seth godin out there who seems to be quite influential in this field and one of the messages I'm getting is that advertising and marketing is all about identity. And so is literature. Right. Um, so these two discourses seem like they're, they're actually quite close to one another. And yeah, like at this stage, I'm just kind of in the, in the research phase of looking at sort of the history of advertising and marketing. There was a great ad campaign by Burma Shave Company, and they posted um, lines of poetry on individual tiny little signs on a road, and they rhymed. And drivers would just catch all these, these little snippets of poetry until they got to assume the end of the road, and there'd be a little final couplet about the Burma Shave Corporation. And I thought, well, okay. Literature and advertising and poetry are all kind of dovetailing in these kinds of moments. And I find that just fascinating, this quest for identity. And a quest for a language to identify oneself with, right? Because some of this reminds me of Orwellian Newspeak, right? This is my Orwell moment. 
I think the, the thing with Orwell is he doesn't actually write in Newspeak. No, that's true. That's true. And and the challenge for this novel is that even the narrator will be in this world where he has to write an ad speak to you, the reader, and then you'll become complicit in ad speak, <laughs> and and you'll learn to like to ignore the advertisements and see the text and see the message through all the advertisement, which is, I think, part of the condition of contemporary life as well. You know, and we can suppress the ads, even though the saturation is so high. Or maybe we don't. You know, maybe advertising is still working, but we've fooled ourselves into thinking that, ah, oh, I'm not really, yeah. you know, yeah. subject to it. It's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating field. And I see a lot of sort of connection points. So... I am trying to to find this sort of point between art and literature and advertising. Uh, it's not new territory. I know. I know it's up there. No, no, but, no. But I need to like figure it out for myself and try and work it into a novel form. So like a line of it right now is like, I'm sorry, this is a bad connection. And then in square brackets, reach out and touch someone. And that little bracketed ad connects to this idea of connection. So there's this kind of algorithmic thing going on in the background. And our readers will sort of figure out how the... Oh, you, you can kind of work out the references. Or if someone says, this is really hard, and then a Viagra pops up next to it, like that, that kind of goofiness of yeah. the algorithm is really funny for me as well. We come back to this idea of affect invading. I can see how someone would would sort of be thinking about the reach out and touch someone uh, ad if they have a poor connection, right? They'd be thinking of it ironically. Well, you know, I wish, but you know, clearly the connection's too bad, and I can't, yeah. right? And then, of course, the idea of being um, misconceived when you're talking about something being difficult, but you use the word hard, and then Viagra ad pops up. So it sounds to me like the affect is both uh, anticipated, sometimes rightly, and of course, sometimes yeah. wrongly, ironically, strangely, right? Yeah, like I said, the algorithm doesn't see bad connection, it just sees connection. Right. Right, and then right. it sticks, and then you get the bell advertisement, even though the context is the same of the sentence. Yeah, we're talking about details and quite abstractly about a, a piece <laughs> of work that, that has yet to be written. But that's the phase I'm in right now. It's just sort of thinking about marketing, thinking about a story, thinking about some characters and where this work might fit in contemporary culture. Oof, gosh, that's really Wow. Weird. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Got to be ambitious here. And I know, like most poets who are working on a novel, they also sort of sneak away and write poems anyway, and in part because, you know, there is kind of an addiction to short forms, too. Once you write in them for a long time, committing yourself to a long prose book is hard work. And I know whenever I'm writing a prose book, I do run away and, and write some poems, too, just to relieve that part of my brain. Uh, so you're writing poetry as well. Do you want to say more about that project? Yeah, I'm working on this new book. It's a, a collection of sonnets, um, which I think balances between the kind of loose, improvisational, quote-unquote, lyric mode of love language and the really kind of tight constraints of skywriting. So this book of sonnets, which tentatively is being called The Honest Sonnets, has, yeah, the form of the sonnet has really, really taken hold for me because... Yeah, it seems to hinge exactly between the restrictive and the lyrical 
um, or the expansive or something along those lines. You can say a lot of different things with sonnets, but it's also very tightly controlled. That's kind of irresistible to me at this point. Um, of course, I don't want to be like kind of hidebound by the form itself. So I kind of have my own take on it. I'm trying to work it out. Here's one it's called True, True. Keep, keep hold of the journal that published your first, first poem. Everyone, everyone else is going to forget, forget. But you, you must keep, keep it close. Keep, keep it close since you never, never really, really read the whole, whole thing. Look, look for it now, now. Read, read every, every word. Hold, hold dear that pack of lost, lost texts as long, long as you can. For who, who cares for such, such drafts but us, us? Stein, Stein, perhaps, perhaps. Try, try to hang, hang on to that young, young poet you once, once were. No, 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 you were pre-precise. Read, read, read again. You were you, you were true, were truth then, then. Thank you. I think that is a very honest sonnet. <laughs> Yeah. About beginnings and about remembering them. Yeah. And, and insistence and holding on and just doubles and repetitions. And mm -hmm. It's a pretty, perhaps a pretty reductive sense of what the sauna is. 14 lines, you know, I've gone for a 10 syllable line. And, and after that, I'm kind of letting the chips fall where they may, um, as it were. Well, the sonnet's having a you know, great resurgence, quite frankly, and, and I don't know if we can credit Diane Seuss and her um, award-winning book of poems, Frank, but yeah. um, I know <laughs> last year, every poet I knew was reading them and going, my mind is blown by her sonnets. And again, yeah. in part because, boy, there's someone who writes her context, right? Yeah. Um, and she just uh, really sort of opened it up for a lot of people, including thinking both about rhyme and not about rhyme, you know, at yeah. the same time, which is sort of her, her genius for sure. We are coming to the end of our time together. See, an hour goes by so fast. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. So I really want to thank you for, uh, for being our guest here on Watershed Writers and to say that you are the writer-in-residence, the Edna Stabler writer-in-residence at Wilfrid Laurier University, and you're here until March 22nd, and of course, open to seeing community members as well as people who um, are at Laurier for their projects. And uh, people can contact me if they uh, want to know more about how to get in touch with you. My guest today has been Nazar Hussein, author of Love Language and Skywritings. Both books are available from Coach House Books and, of course, wherever you get your fine books in the region. We like to support local booksellers, and so I encourage you to go to the bookshelf in Guelph, to Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, to Rookery Books in Cambridge, and to the Good Minds Bookstore on the Six Nations. Thanks again, Nazar. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode. 
If you are intrigued by what Nazar had to say about skywritings and want to hear more, may I recommend a TEDx talk by Nazar that is currently available on YouTube. It is called How to Notice the Glaringly Obvious, and we've got a clip for you. I learned a lot in the process of writing this project. I learned that there were a lot of words that I needed and wanted and found, like A-N-D, and, which is Sandusky Griffin a Regional Airport. I think it's in Ohio. Um, T-H-E, the, a keyword for me, um, is a, a tiny airport in Teresina, Brazil. I also learned, and I thought I knew all the three-letter words in the language, but there were a bunch that I didn't know, <laughs> including JOR, J-O-R, um, is a, a short instrumental interlude in Indian classical music. There are words for pennies in Polynesian currencies. Anu, a Babylonian sky god. Or Dzo, D-Z-O, which is the offspring of a yak and a cow. <laughs> I learned that Papua New Guinea has the highest concentration of word airports per square mile on the planet. And that Canada, my home, has the fewest. And no one will ever explain to me why Toronto Lester B. Pearson Airport has the code YYZ. It's a complete mystery to me. But aside from some trivia and a slightly enhanced Scrabble game, what else did I learn? I think I learned something really important in the process of this project, and that's how to notice things. In 2015, James Wood, uh, who's a critic for the New Yorker magazine, I believe, um, gave this interview called The Art of Persuasion. And he said, there's a pleasing amateurism about literary criticism, despite the fact that it's now enshrined in university programs. A professor of literature at a fancy university is not necessarily a better noticer than an ordinary reader. He says we have to train our noticing. And in the process of this project and creating this form of skywriting, um, I learned that boredom and exhaustion are prime tools for helping us notice things that we would easily overlook. That's from Nazar Hussein's TEDx talk, How to Notice the Glaringly Obvious, now up on YouTube. Watershed Riders comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud or to our website at watershedriders.ca. Coming up on the podcast, we'll be speaking with novelist Susan Fish about her book Renaissance. It's a book that details a family crisis and a trip to Florence to figure out how it all went so wrong. And Susan takes on some difficult questions about feminism and faith along the way. And we'll complete our fourth season by interviewing fiction writer and essayist Mariam Pierbai, talking with her about her two most recent books. One, Garden Inventories, in which she considers her position as an emigre settler in the Waterloo region. And two, her novel, Isolated Incident, about young Muslim people and a few older ones thinking about matters of belief and culture in the urban corridor between Mississauga and Kitchener. 
A few weeks ago, I hosted Mariam's launch of garden inventories at the Waterloo Public Library to a packed house. Mariam and I will talk about fruit trees, global migration, and plants as good neighbors. Francis Roberts Riley is the founder and producer of Watershed Riders. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am Tannis McDonald, your host and voracious reader. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Uno.